For many Christians, the Christmas story is exclusively a New Testament thing. Without its Old Testament roots, we're missing out on some of the best that God has for us and a whole lot of biblical detail. Well, coming up, we're going to look at the greatest Christmas prophecies in the Old Testament. Plus, we'll enjoy a dramatic reading that will give you a whole new appreciation for the miracle of Christ's birth. It's a special Christmas edition. And with that, welcome to The Land and the Book. I'm John Gager, sitting across from our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. Merry Christmas, Charlie. Merry Christmas to you, John. You know, you think about the fact that the new year is approaching so quickly, 2023 is going to be here, and I find myself asking, you know, what do I want my priorities to be for the coming year? I'm guessing others feel the same, and uh, wondering if maybe a reminder to pray would be helpful. It would indeed be something very helpful. And our friends at Life and Messiah are offering us a 2023 prayer calendar, uh, especially for Land in the Book listeners. Each month displays a beautiful image relating to an aspect of Jewish life and a point of prayer for that month. All the major Jewish holidays scattered throughout the year are also highlighted. This calendar would be a daily reminder for you to pray for the Jewish people and Life and Messiah's ministry. If you'd like one of these artistic calendars for yourself or as a gift for someone else, visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button to find out how you can receive your calendar. That's lifeinmessiah.org. All right, let's dig into a look at current events coming out of the Middle East. Top stories, things that have been unfolding or brewing, as we sometimes say, all week long. (laughs) Uh, Charlie, an interesting uh, look at Christmas, though, first. Was Jesus born on December the 25th? Some doubt this was the actual date of Jesus' birth, but a new article offers evidence that the date, or at least the month, has strong support in early church history. What do we need to know about the date of Jesus' birth? Yeah, I found this fascinating, John, and, and I'll say it this way first. We need to know what the problem is. And the argument against December 25 being the date for Jesus' birth goes something like this. The day was originally a Roman pagan holiday. It was the festival of Saturnalia, or the birth date of the sun god Sol. In the 4th century, after the time of Constantine, when Christianity became the official religion, that pagan holiday was then baptized into becoming a Christian holiday to celebrate the birth of Jesus. Now, I'm sure our listeners, at least many of them, have heard that given before. Mm -hmm. Now, here's where this new article in the winter edition of Biblical Archaeology Review proves helpful. The author affirms a fantastic twist to the story. He first makes two key observations, and the first is the earliest reference to December 25th being the birth date of Jesus isn't from the year 354 A.D. in the time of Constantine. Actually, the earliest reference was over 132 years earlier in 222 A.D. by Hippolytus of Rome, an early Christian theologian. Now, I'll come back to him in a moment. The author's second observation is that Saturnalia and the Feast of Sol were not celebrated on December 25 that early in Roman history. Saturnalia never was, and the Feast of Sol came about later. They were winter festivals, but not on December 25, at least not in the year 222. Now, back to Hippolytus. A statue of Hippolytus was discovered. It now stands in the Vatican Library. An inscription on the side of the chair has a lunar table in which the first year corresponds to April 13, 222. So we can date the statue. Hippolytus was calculating the dates for Passover based on the full moon at the time of the spring equinox. And in another of his works, he recorded a common belief in the early church that Jesus was conceived during Passover on March 25 and born exactly nine months later on December 25. So here's the bottom line. Does this prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was born on December 25? 
It doesn't, because we don't know for certain that Mary conceived at the time of Passover. But what this does prove is that the date wasn't chosen to, quote, baptize a pagan holiday to turn it into something Christian. December 25 was chosen before that date ever had pagan associations. And it was chosen because these early church fathers and theologians believed it was when Jesus was born. They then linked the time of his conception to Passover. So as you celebrate the birth of Jesus this year, don't get bent out of shape by the date. It's not a pagan holiday, even though it might not be the exact day of his birth. Well, in spite of a peace treaty, Israel and Jordan haven't been the best of neighbors. But now the two countries have penned an agreement to clean up the Jordan River. What exactly is in the new agreement, and could this possibly help thaw the ice between them, Charlie? Yeah, this is a small but encouraging sign at a time of year when we're thinking about, you know, tidings of peace for all mankind. Israel and Jordan signed a declaration of intent to partner together for the ecological restoration and sustainable development of the Jordan River. The Jordan is relatively clean from its start at the base of Mount Hermon to the Sea of Galilee, and then just as it leaves the sea on its way south toward the Dead Sea. But so much water is pumped out of it for irrigation, and so many chemicals and fertilizers and waste get dumped into it along the way, that by the time it gets to the Dead Sea, well, it's just a polluted trickle of its former self. The document was signed at the UN Climate Conference held in Egypt, and it provides a practical expression to the 1994 peace treaty, part of which said the two countries would cooperate on environmental issues related to the Jordan River. Both countries have agreed to build wastewater facilities along the Jordan to advance sewage infrastructure. They also pledged to regulate agricultural runoff and to reduce the use of pesticides, and they hope to restore the area along the river and develop tourism along its bank. Now, here's the downside. The initial agreement only covers the 23 miles just to the south of the Sea of Galilee, all of which is inside Israel. Unfortunately, the area south of that, all the way down to the Dead Sea, will also require the cooperation of the Palestinian Authority, since the status of that land is still in dispute. And right now, it's unclear when, if ever, that will happen. But let me end the story on a positive note, John. Israel also just completed its project to carry desalinated water from the Mediterranean to the Sea of Galilee. Now, that water isn't yet flowing, but hopefully, as the Sea of Galilee fills up, more clean water will be released to flow down the Jordan River, and that would be great for all involved. Boy, that's encouraging. Thank you, Charlie. This is The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. We're in the middle of our weekly look at current events, stories, things that uh, you need to know about, all coming out of the Middle East. Well, the Jordan River might be getting cleaned up, but apparently the Tigris River is drying up. What's causing this major problem, and can anything be done to reverse the situation? Mesopotamia was the land between the rivers, you know, referring to the Tigris and Euphrates. We've talked before about the problems facing the Euphrates River, which begins in Turkey and flows through Syria before continuing on into Iraq. Uh, The construction of dams on the Euphrates by Turkey have reduced the flow of water from the Euphrates into both Syria and Iraq. And sadly, the same thing is happening to the Tigris River. The Tigris begins in Turkey before flowing through the region of Kurdistan near the borders of Turkey and Syria and then on down through Iraq. Part of the problem facing both rivers comes from a sustained drought that has this region in its grip. Uh, This uh, has impacted Jordan, Syria, Iraq, and Iran. But that problem is compounded by the dams built by Turkey on both rivers, which has reduced the flow of water downstream. Uh, In Kurdistan, the level of the Tigris has dropped to just 35% of its overall flow over the past century. 
Iraq has asked Turkey to release more water, but Turkey's response is, well, Iraq, use the water you're now receiving more efficiently. The impact on agriculture in Iraq is dramatic. Iraq was forced this year to reduce the area under cultivation in that region by half. Hmm. The reduction in water is forcing more farmers off their land and into the cities. Now, that's often referred to as climate migration, and it is a reality in Iraq. Just 35 years ago, John, I was in Baghdad looking down at a substantial Tigris River flowing through the city. This summer, the water level was so low that the people were playing volleyball in the middle of the river, splashing through water that was barely waist deep. Further south in Iraq, the reduced water is killing off groves of palm trees and drying up the marshes that were once part of the landscape. And as the water level drops, the rising waters of the Persian Gulf are pushing salt water further upstream, raising salination and impacting crop yields in that region. Iraq has tremendous oil reserves, but the once fertile region is turning into a desert. It seems like in Iraq, water has become a far more precious resource than oil. What would you like to see under your Christmas tree or in your driveway this Christmas? Hey, how about a flying car? It's uh, not quite the Jetsons, but uh, several Israeli startups have been developing flying cars that they believe will transform your commute over the next decade or so. Tell us about these amazing innovations from Amazing Israel. You know, John, knowing both you and me, I think we would we would all enjoy having that flying car, but uh, <laughs> we're not quite ready for it, uh, at least in our Christmas stocking this year. But if two Israeli startups have their way, you might be able to uh, take off in the not-too-distant future, uh, assuming, of course, the price is right. Now, one company is called, appropriately enough, AIR, A-I-R. They're already taking orders for their all-electric two-seater Air One that has a range of 110 miles on a single charge at speeds up to 155 miles an hour. It has collapsible wings for easy parking and can take off and land from any flat surface. They hope to have it available for sale by 2024, but the $150,000 price tag might limit the number who are ready to sign up right now. Now, another Israeli company is called Pentaxi. And as the name suggests, it's intended to be a flying taxi service. While the first model will be for cargo, their goal is to produce a flying taxi able to transport 880 pounds for 200 miles at a speed of 150 miles an hour. The CEO who headed up Israel Aerospace Industries UAV division since 1974 is in control. And he feels confident in building these oversized unmanned aerial vehicles. This would be like more of a point-to-point -point commuter flight. Now, these prototypes don't exactly look like flying cars you know, pictured on the Jetsons, but someday, maybe soon, someone on a crowded freeway might look up and see a coworker flying by in his or her own flying vehicle. And when that happens, I suspect some of those craft will have been developed in amazing Israel. Up next, a conversation with Greg Savitt, a familiar friend here on The Land and the Book. You've heard of messianic prophecies. It's a mouthful. And you say, I don't really know too many. I'm not real gifted at understanding messianic prophecies. Relax. We're about to dig into this subject and equip you to share messianic prophecies with your friends. You're going to come away, I think, uh, well equipped as you stay with us here on The Land and the Book. Welcome back. I'm John Geiger, if we haven't met before. And if you haven't met Greg Savitt, well, you should. 
Greg knows how to share his faith. He serves as director of Jewish evangelism for a ministry called Rock of Israel. And Greg, is it fair to say you often use messianic prophecies when you're sharing your faith? All the time. I find it's a great way to get a Jewish person looking towards the New Testament. I'm not shy of the New Testament, but I think with sometimes Jewish people, it's it's a good start because yeah. it's their playground. We, uh, we come to the season of Christmas, and a favorite Christmas verse, quote-unquote, is Isaiah 9, 6. And, uh, but it isn't just a Christmas verse at all. No, it's Isaiah 9, 6, and a lot of people will see this verse, and they'll be like, oh, that's nice, and they don't <laughs> think about it. And the reason why I use this verse a lot is Jewish people have a very much a problem with Jesus's deity, mm. that he's the Son of God. And it's funny how Gentiles have a hard time dealing with his humanity. It's kind of very interesting. Let me let me jump in and quote the verse just so we can kind of set the sure. stage here. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Amen. Well, when I first read this, it says, For unto us a child is born, a son is given. Okay. You have a Jewish kid born. Maybe he's the next president of the United States, or maybe he's the king of David, king of Israel. It says the government will be rest on sh- his shoulders. So this person is, is a human. He's very powerful. But this next verse, you have four attributes that is given to this son, which is only given to God and never given to a human being. Mm-hmm. And they're this, wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father and prince of peace. You will never find Mm. a person getting this. And I believe Isaiah is combining God and man, the incarnation right there. And then I like to look at the next verse. There will be no end to the crease of his government or peace or the throne of David and over his kingdom. The Messiah had to be from the line of David. The temple records were destroyed in 70 AD. There's really no way for a person to claim he's from the line of David. Now, Ancestry.com, John, I don't think it goes back 3,500 years. But back then, they had the temple records. So he could be the righteous king, the born of Messiah, wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, and prince of peace. And I like to call him Sar Shalom, the prince of peace. You know, for those who uh, wrestle with the Trinity, uh, I think that's also a powerful verse, you know. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. But he's also, unto us a son is born. It's really good. It's right there, and uh, it's kind of just unfolding, Mm -hmm. you know, the Trinity. It's not a proof text, but you're showing in his word that there is a combination of one yet more. Like the word... Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, that word for one, Echad. Now, it's not just one and only one. It's Echad. It's a plurality of one. It's Genesis 2.24 when Adam and Eve became one flesh. Now, wait a second. I used to be a CPA. That's two people. But God calls it as one. And I see, like you said, I'm seeing uh, God's triune nature in this verse. Messianic prophecies. That's the conversation today on The Land and the Book with our guest, Greg Savitt, who serves with Rock of Israel. Let's go to uh, Micah 5.2. This is one of the minor prophets and an interesting verse, Micah 5.2. Can we have you start by reading the verse, Greg, and then maybe some insights? Micah 5.2. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephratah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel, 
his going forth are from long ago, from days eternity. Now, when Herod wanted to destroy the Jewish children, thought that he might be Messiah. Where did he go to? He went to Bethlehem. Why? Because of the scripture right there. And so what's amazing is Messiah is not just going to be born in Bethlehem, but a smaller piece of Bethlehem. It's like Messiah is not going to be born in New York City. It's going to be born in Westchester, hmm. you know, even a smaller place. And God is just, God is taking his odds and making him smaller and smaller. Um, Messiah is predicted here. He was born in Bethlehem of Judea. And once again, we have to go through Judah that the scepter will not depart from Judah. And we know that the temple records were destroyed. And the only way for a person to claim that was in the temple. There's an interesting story. I don't know if people know the story of Menachem Mendel Schneerson. Uh, he was a, a Lubavitcher rabbi and in Brooklyn, New York. And the night before, he was going to have a press conference to announce that he was the Messiah of Israel. Hmm. And he had a stroke that night, never to speak again. Hmm. And I just wonder if God was protecting his holiness. Yeah. So they still have armed guards at his grave. 21 and a half years later, John, I mean, it took Jesus <laughs> three days. These guys are there for a long term. But I love this last verse, and I, a lot of people miss this. His going forth from long ago, from days of attorney. This person who's born king of the Israel has always existed. And Jesus many times says, before Abraham, I, wa I am. I mean, he always mm -hmm. declared, you know, his divinity. So I think that's a great verse to think about around Christmas time because, yeah, he's born in Bethlehem, but he's, he's from everlasting. Yes. Yeah, that everlasting, that eternity is a quality only of God himself. And, and again, you have the, you know, Jewish people have a real tough time with man being God, but you're seeing it in our own scriptures. Mm -hmm. We have a son but he's divine. How does that work? Mm -hmm. I think our best explanation is the incarnation, that Jesus is fully human and fully divine, and together, that is Jesus the Messiah. Micah 5.2. Let's go back to the Pentateuch, since we're tossing around terms here, one of the five first books of the Bible. Go to Deuteronomy, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy chapter 18. What do you got there by way of Messianic prophecy? I love this prophecy, John, because I've talked to many Orthodox Jews that say, if Jesus was the Messiah, there'd be something in the Torah about him. And I'm like, hey, have you looked at Deuteronomy 18, 15, verse 18? And it says this, the Lord your God will raise for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. By the way, God is speaking to Moses. And then he says in verse 18, I will raise up a prophet from among the countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I commend him. So who is a greater prophet than Moses? I'm all in that it's Jesus, <laughs> okay? And God is speaking through him. And this person is from Israel, and God is speaking through him to all his commands. Now, what's really interesting is we have John 1.45. We find Nathaniel and Philip, and they say this, We have found of him who Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote about Jesus. What's he talking about? He's talking about Deuteronomy chapter 1815, about this person who's greater than Moses, who will speak to Moses, who um, God's word is in his mouth. So 
this is, I really believe, a prophecy we saw fulfilled. Hmm. Um, because I don't know, John, do we know of a prophet more than Moses? Hmm. I don't think we do. I believe it's Jesus. I do too. Here on The Land and the Book, we're connecting with Greg Savitt today. He serves as director of Jewish evangelism for a ministry called Rock of Israel. And, you know, messianic prophecies can be very useful as you share your faith with your Jewish friends. Apparently, Greg, the Messiah can be seen even in the very first book of the Bible. Where do we see Christ in in the book of Genesis? Take us there. We see it very early on in Genesis 3.15. And what has happened is Adam has eaten the forbidden fruit along with Eve. And this reminds me of when I was in high school, when I'd made a mistake and the teacher lined me up and my three friends and said, Greg, you're gonna clean that backboard. John, you're gonna clean the floor. Steve, you're gonna take out the trash cans. And what happens though is God lines them up and here's what he said to them. And this is probably one of the most important verses in the Bible because it shows how the seed of the Messiah will happen. Genesis 3.15, and I will put enmity, that's a big fancy word for hatred, between you, which is Satan, and the woman, which is Eve, and between your offspring and hers. So there's going to be battle between the demonic offspring of the devil, dominions, principalities, and her offspring. But it says that Satan will strike his heel, and that's Jesus. Isn't it interesting when Jesus went across and he crossed his legs and they did it while he was lying down because they don't want him to fall off the cross, that he took a spike through his heel. And what's also interesting is we have this idea about seed. Okay, I want to go from a seed, now it goes through a nation. And Genesis 12, 3 says, the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you will curse you, and all the people of the earth will be blessed. What's interesting is that it's a great nation. Arabs, Jews, Muslims, Christians all know that Abraham had a great nation, and his name was great. In Muslim, Christianity, and Judaism, he's a great name. But those who bless this nation will be blessed, and those who curse them will be cursed. Greg, let's talk about Genesis 22 for a moment. Where do we see Messiah there? Genesis 22 is always read on the night of Rosh Hashanah. And it's so amazing that as Jewish people read that, Isaac is such an archetype of Jesus. And I just wonder how many people are getting that connection and they don't even realize it? You know, I wonder, how could they miss it? How could they? I mean, so, I mean, it's amazing. And we know that the seed is going to go through Isaac. Now, Ishmael's 14 years old. In Jewish law, the older child gets the blessing, but he doesn't. In Genesis 17, 9, God said, Yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him and an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. So it's pretty interesting that Isaac has a seed of promise, but we're following that seed from Genesis 3.15. And what's amazing is that seed is now in Isaac and Rebekah. And what's funny is I call this WWWE 
wrestling in the womb because literally Jacob and Esau, they're like battling, man. They're like slam dunking. And it's so much so that she asked for prayer. So this is amazing symbolism, John. We have Esau representing the Arab nation, Jacob representing the Jewish nation. John, they're fighting in the womb. I mean, they haven't stopped fighting for 3,500 years, but in the womb. Pretty amazing. And then what happens is through Jacob, now you have to follow the line. Which one it's going to be? Now it gets trickier. Is it Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin? Well, if I'm a betting man, I am all in on Joseph. Man, he saves Israel. There's a lot of chapters about this guy, Mm -hmm. but it's not through him. It's through Judah. Genesis 49.10 is the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh, or the Prince of Peace, comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Mm-hmm. I know I've said this in earlier radio interviews, that there is no person that claims to be from the line of Judah. It was when the temple records were there, they're destroyed, and nobody from Ancestry.com can do that. So that is the seed, and after the seed of that, it goes to a shepherd boy named David, and after that, it goes through the Messiah, and he will reign on earth forever when he returns in power and glory. Well, it's a fascinating conversation. And Greg, I want to thank you for your time. Again, we want to invite you to play it all again, listen again, learn more as you visit our website, thelandandthebook.org. That's thelandandthebook.org. Coming up on the program, your friend and mine, Charlie Dyer, is back with a look at questions that have come into us via email. Hope yours is one of them. See you in a moment on The Land and the Book. This is The Land of the Book from Moody Radio, and if you're new to the program, this segment we bring you every single week is devoted exclusively to listener questions, questions about the Bible, about the Middle East, things that have stumped you maybe as you've perused Scripture, and they're welcome anytime at our Facebook page, or you can email us at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Answering those questions. Who's that, you say? Thank you very much for asking. It is Dr. Jim Coakley, who serves on the Moody Theological Seminary staff. Always nice to have you in the studio and to get your professional opinion on this stuff. Boy, John, it's always great to work with you, too, in this program. And it's nice to look forward to the uh, upcoming June 2017 trip to the Holy Land. People should be thinking seriously now as we head to the year end about... Yep, we're getting to that time of year when they have to really uh, decide whether they're going to join us or not. Yeah, and this is a a fascinating trip this year with an optional Jordan extension. Yes, I'm planning to lead a group over to Jordan, and we'll see Petra, and we'll get down to a lot, and we'll see uh, Timna and some of these other sites, uh, Madaba and Mount Nebo, and it's going to be a really exciting addition. So maybe some of our listeners have never been to Jordan and want to join us for that extension. And maybe you've never been to Israel. You'll want to check that out. Imagine sailing on the Sea of Galilee, walking through the streets of Jerusalem, uh, seeing the the foundational stones of of a temple that was there when Jesus 
was there. Mm, amazing. Amazing. This amazing. is your Got experience. Got me hungry to go. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Why don't you uh, head to our website, thelandandthebook.org. Click on the Holy Land Tours tab. Learn everything you need to know about this June 2017 trip. That said, let's dig right into our questions. Tammy writes, I heard someone recently talking about the lineage of Jesus. They gave reasons why the first three of Jacob's sons were not able to be in the chosen lineage. I was wondering then why Judah was not disqualified because of his sleeping with one he thought was a whore. To me, this would be the same reason why Reuben was disqualified. Boy, Tammy, I love this question because it shows that you're an astute reader of the text. And this is the type of reader that I always encourage our students in the classroom to Mm -hmm. be this type of reader. Again, Judah's the fourthborn, and yet he's the seed line. So how does that happen? Normally, it's the youngest. We would normally expect somebody like Joseph uh, to be it, because clearly the text focuses a lot on his actions. Yeah. So why is it that Judah, the fourthborn, becomes a seed line? Why is he the line of the Messiah? Now, Reuben slept with Bilhah when it was Jacob's handmaid, mm-hmm. and so he, in a sense, disqualified himself. Simeon and Levi, because they exacted vengeance on the Shechemites using circumcision, which was a sacred sign of the covenant, they used that as a means to exact revenge on the Shechemites. Mm-hmm. So they're disqualified. They're violent people. That's the, the Genesis 49 makes that clear. But then Judah, you think, well, why is he any different? Because in chapter 38, we have an entire chapter where he separates from the family. He uh, sleeps with uh, Tamar, his daughter-in-law, and it's like, why is he not just like Reuben or like the others disqualified? How mm-hmm. is it that he became the seed line? Well, I think there's something in that story that a lot of people can easily overlook. And that's when we come to the part where Tamar comes forward and says who the father is, kind mm-hmm. of the great reveal. And in verse 24 of chapter 28, we read this. Now, it was about three months later that Judah was informed, your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot and behold, she is with child by harlotry. Then Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. It was while she was being brought out that she sent to her father-in-law, saying, I am a child by the man to whom these things belong. Remember the staff and the cord Mm -hmm. and uh, his stick. And she said, Please examine and see whose signet ring and cords and staff are these. And Judah recognized them and said, here's the key phrase, She is more righteous than I. You could actually translate it, She is righteous, not I. Hmm. Really what's unique about this is that this is the first time in all of the book of Genesis where any patriarch in a sense, admits sin. Hmm. Abraham never admits sin. Jacob is a scoundrel. Uh, Isaac never admits sin, Mm -hmm. and they commit these things. But here we now have a patriarch for the first time, when confronted with their sin, mans up and says, she is righteous, not I. I'm guilty. Hmm. And again, what the text does next is very subtle, and he did not sleep with her anymore. So that's kind of, a again, a reminder that he changed. He's changed. He's transformed. He's Mm -hmm. repented, as Mm -hmm. it were. And this is special. This is unique. This is unprecedented in the book of Genesis. And I think then that's the reason now why Judah, it becomes more on the radar screen. And I encourage our listeners now, as you read the Joseph story, keep your eye always on Judah as well. And you see how his rise to prominence also occurs. Whenever he speaks, people listen. Others, they don't listen to. But Judah gains in respect, so much so that when dad, Jacob, gives the blessing, he says to Judah, all of your brothers will bow down to you. Now, why is that significant? Because in Genesis 37, Joseph's dream said, Mm -hmm. they're all going to bow down to Joseph. Mm -hmm. So dad, in a sense, reverses the fulfillment of Joseph's dream and says, no, 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 no. It's not going to be Joseph to whom the brothers are going to bow down to. Now it's going to be Judah. And so Judah is a real testimony of repentance when caught with sin. And that's a good reminder for all of us. 
And God seemed to honor that in a special way. God honored that in a special way, and so he became the seed line. And so he sacrifices himself. He's willing when Joseph puts that silver cup in Benjamin's Mm -hmm. sack, and Judah says, no, let me take the place of Benjamin. And so clearly, there's a lot of great character traits. Prior to that, not so good. Mm -hmm. But after Genesis 38, and he admits his sin, he's a changed man. Your questions are welcome anytime. Why not be a part of the discussion at the land and the book at moody.edu. When you email us, Jim will look over your question, fire you back a response. Personal. Don't you love it? Take a day or two and you'll get the answer that you're looking for. And then we'll feature your question very likely in a future broadcast. Livy writes, what exactly is being sealed in Revelation 7? Is it the scrolls or something to do with the 12 tribes of Israel? All right. I think it's clearly the latter. Uh, the context of Revelation 7 makes it clear that it's the 144,000, the 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes who are sealed. And what is that seal? It's a mark of authority who identifies who these people are that are a part of this group, the 144,000. So it's God's seal. He's the one who puts it. This is not the mark of the beast. So mm-hmm. this is God's seal. It's the servants of God. These special flaming evangelists, as some people call them, yeah. are the ones who are, are sealed. So it's not a scroll. And the seal here is then putting God's seal of authority that they are going to be my representatives. They're going to be my ambassadors, my evangelists. And so I am so glad uh, that God is in control of the chaos, even during the tribulation period, and that the main theme of the book of Revelation is God wins. Nick has written, I recently knew a friend who was, as far as we all knew, a saved, born-again Christian. But things happened in his life, and he committed suicide. Can a truly born-again Christian still go to heaven if they kill themselves? Yeah, it's a tragedy any way you deal with it. Mm -hmm. In a short answer, yes. There is no sin that can keep a true believer from inheriting eternal life. Once we put our faith and trust in him, all of our sins, past, present, future, are forgiven and washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, our sin can break fellowship, but we can't break the relationship. So we can not enjoy the fellowship, but we can't stop the relationship from going on, even suicide. Now, some have erroneously thought that since suicide is an act where one cannot ask forgiveness of after they've committed it because they're in glory, as it were, uh, that it's an unconfessed sin and that way then it doesn't allow them to enter into heaven. But I think there's a lot of people who have died who oh. have all sorts of unconfessed sin. Sure. And so that's sins not Sins of pre- omission. Sins of sins omission, of commission. Of commission. Yeah. So I don't think suicide is a special category of sin that would prevent uh, access into heaven. Now, suicide is wrong. Suicide is self-murder. It's the wrongful taking of a life. And especially this time of year, around the holidays, we need to be very sensitive to those around us who may be uh, having a struggle with the holidays and dealing with uh, issues of self-mutilation or suicide. And so I think we need to be thinking about those out there that we know and love that may struggle with this area. And if you personally are struggling with this area, uh, dear listener, we encourage you to get help. Seek out the counsel. Call 911. Please do not go ahead and proceed with this. Uh, God loves you so much, and we love you as well. Let's pray right now. Lord Jesus, I think of listeners who are struggling just as Jim has laid out the case, feeling worthless, feeling hopeless, and tempted to do something drastic like take their own life or mutilate themselves. And Lord, we ask that you would bring them peace. Yes. uh, Guide them to good biblical counsel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, John. One more question from Berlin, who asks, where will the Holy Spirit be in the New Jerusalem? Yeah, this comes from the book of Revelation. Uh, Revelation chapter 21, 23 says this, And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. And then next chapter, And there will be no longer any night, for they will not have need of the light of the lamp nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they shall reign forever and ever. 
Now, it's not very obvious or clear, but I think the passage here in Revelation 22, verse 5, seems to describe what we might call the Shekinah glory. There's no more light sources that we're used to, like the sun or the moon or even lamps. So how do we get illumination? Well, I think just like in the creation, days one to three before the sun and the moon are created, uh, we have light because that's the first act of creation. Let there be light. And I think that light is the Shekinah glory. It's the glory of the sense represented and embodied in the Holy Spirit. And we have a verse in Isaiah chapter 63 that tells us a little bit about the correlation between the Shekinah glory and the Holy Spirit. Here it says in verse 11, Then his people remembered the days of old of Moses, Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit in the midst of them? So the Holy Spirit is in the midst of them. I think that's the pillar of fire and cloud, and that's the Shekinah glory. And I think that's then the more logical explanation as to what this light source is, that it's a visible manifestation of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to have all members of the Trinity present in the New Jerusalem, and I think it's this Shekinah glory, this light source is going to be represented and embodied by the Holy Spirit. Well, think of it. We have been all over the map today with questions, literally from Genesis to Revelation. That's correct. Jim, I take my head off. Good job. Well, thank you. And your question welcome at the land and the book at moody.edu. Swaddling clothes. What exactly are they? Charlie Dyer tells us in his devotional coming up next on the land and the book. for a treat as you stay with us here on The Land and the Book. I'm John Gager. You know, there is nothing like contemplating, reliving, pondering the story of Christmas from the place where it all happened, the Holy Land. Coming up in his devotional, Charlie Dyer takes us right there to Bethlehem, to all the action in a fresh new way. You don't want to miss it. Right now, though, we'll enjoy a Holy Land experience. That's what we call these testimonies that have come in from listeners who have traveled over to Israel and have been so impacted by what they've seen, by what they've heard, just like those shepherds of old. Here is a great Holy Land experience for us. One of the interesting things that happens when you go to Israel is that you start to read your Bible quite differently. About a year and a half ago, Melinda and I had the privilege of being on a one of Moody's Israel trips and in the context of that trip uh, we visited the village of Bethlehem for the better part of an afternoon and evening Um, but I can certainly tell you that in that uh, setting you get a real sense of that picture that we have often of Christmas and where Jesus came to earth is quite different than the one that actually exists and I can remember standing on a ridge somewhere and looking out on the this little village of Bethlehem, and that verse in Luke 2, 8 came to life when it said, that night some shepherds were in the fields outside the village. And I could look on those fields, and it's kind of scruffy, dry land. And I just could somehow strain to look at those fields and say, wow, it was here. It was somewhere near here where angels announced that God had come to earth for a reason to fix what was broken here. I'll never read my Bible again the same, just having been there and seeing for myself what it was like. Much more real, much more like real life than you can ever imagine. And that's what makes uh, being in Israel so refreshing to my own faith. Thank you for that great perspective. The great thing about the Christmas season 
is even crusty older folks are able to use their imagination once again and to find themselves lost in wonder as we ponder the Savior's birth. Charlie Dyer takes us there in his devotional. Travel back with me to the night Jesus was born. Joseph and Mary have just arrived in Bethlehem to register for the required Roman census. Dr. Luke tells us what happened next. And it came about that while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Who helped Mary with the delivery? We're not told, but it's reasonable to assume she was attended by a midwife or by some older women from the town. Every village must have had a group of wise, experienced women who helped young mothers through the process of delivery. Since both Mary and Joseph traced their family lines back to David, the women of Bethlehem would have certainly come to the aid of these out-of-town relatives. There may have been no place available to house the young couple, but these women must surely have had room in their hearts to show compassion to a young woman going through labor and delivery for the first time. After giving birth, Mary wrapped her newborn son in cloths, or as you might remember from the King James Version, swaddling clothes. But why would Mary wrap her son in strips of cloth bound tightly around his body? Well, in ancient times, the wrapping of a child in strips of cloth was a sign of the parents' loving reception of their child. In the Middle East, a newborn was bathed in warm salt water and then wrapped in strips of soft, warm fabric. In fact, two Old Testament passages talk about these practices. The first is from the book of Job. Toward the end of the book, God confronted Job and asked Job to explain how God created the world. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Or who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth it went out from the womb and I made a cloud its garments and thick darkness its swaddling band? God described the birth of the world and he pictures the dark clouds swirling around the planet as if they were strips of cloth wrapped around his new creation. In the book of Ezekiel, the prophet uses the imagery of swaddling clothes to picture a far sadder scene. He pictured the entire history of Jerusalem as the story of God's compassion toward an unwanted child. The city's origins gave no hint as to its future greatness as Israel's capital and the site of God's holy temple. He writes, As for your birth, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water for cleansing. You were not rubbed with salt or even wrapped in cloths. As an unwanted child, Jerusalem was neglected and uncared for until God showered his grace on her. Note carefully that wrapping the child in swaddling cloths was part of the normal care and love one would expect at a child's birth. But if all the newborns were wrapped in swaddling clothes, in what sense was the wrapping of Jesus that way a sign? Remember, in Luke's account, when the angels appeared to the shepherds, they gave them a sign. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. The key here is to note that the swaddling clothes by themselves are not the sign. The shepherds would find the child wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. The likelihood of both events happening randomly was extremely rare. A toddler could conceivably climb into a feeding trough. But a child wrapped tightly in swaddling bands, as a newborn would be, could only be placed there deliberately. And what mother would place her newborn into a barnyard feeding trough? That's how the shepherds would know they had found the child. A newborn king, even the Jewish Messiah, wrapped in swaddling clothes? That wouldn't be unusual. 
the cut of the cloth and the style of fabric might have differed, but whether the child was the son of a prince or a pauper, one would expect to find him swaddled. But a newborn child, especially a king, being deliberately placed in a manger, a common feeding trough for animals? That certainly made it easy for these shepherds to search through the village until they found the child whose birth had just been announced. And yet, I wonder what was going through their minds as they started on their scavenger hunt, searching for the king of the Jews in a barnyard manger. In many ways, things haven't changed. People today still struggle to accept Jesus as the Messiah, or as the Son of God, or as their personal Savior, because He doesn't match their preconceived ideas. But God asks us, just as the angels did the shepherds, to look beyond expectations and focus on the facts. One doesn't expect to find a newborn king in a manger, but this one was. That was the sign. And one doesn't expect God's Son, the Messiah, to die on a cross, but this one did, to pay the price for our sin. And maybe that's what makes Jesus himself such an amazing gift from God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Do you have a personal relationship with the Jesus of the Bible? Do you know the one who was born in Bethlehem, who died on a cross in Jerusalem to pay the penalty for your sin, who rose from a borrowed tomb three days later, who ascended to heaven, and who's coming back again. If not, why not begin your own personal journey of discovery this holiday season to search out this one about whom God said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Read through the Gospel of Luke to learn what God says about His Son, Jesus. And perhaps, like those shepherds so long ago, you'll find yourself glorifying and praising God for all that they had seen and heard, just as had been told them. Thank you, Charlie, for taking us not just to the passage, but to the very place of the Christmas story. From time to time, we get testimonies from listeners who phone in on our listener comment line and let us know what the broadcast means to them. Here's one of those testimonies. Let's listen. I just wanted to say thank you so much for the program. Me and my wife love listening to it. We both listen to it separately, and then we'll talk about it together. And it's just been a real encouragement. I've also been going through Charlie's 30 Days in the Land with Jesus devotional, and that's just awesome. So having both of these at the same time has been really encouraging, just getting to know the land. I went on one of the Moody tours back in 2012, and that was a great experience. And um, he's just given me a love for Israel and the land and the book, and especially the author of the book, as he would always say. Hey, thanks for sharing those encouraging words. Kind of a Christmas gift for us here at The Land and the Book. Speaking of Christmas gifts, might not be a bad idea to check out 30 Days in the Land with Jesus, Charlie Dyer's devotional book. You can learn more about it at our website, thelandandthebook.org. Click on the Books tab, you'll see it right there. A great collection of some of the very devotionals that you've heard in the past here on The Land and the Book. Well, Merry Christmas to you, to your household. Hope you keep it Christ-centered all Christmas holiday season long. I'm John Gager on behalf of our teacher, Charlie Dyer, our producer, Dan Anderson, our Bible expert, Dr. Jim Coakley, and our Facebook administrator, Serene Hudson. Have a Merry Christmas. See you back next week on The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Global Ministries.